My goal this morning in preaching is really to continue that theme. I, I want to continue to talk about missions, and, and I don't want to know this. My goal is not to guilt trip you because maybe you didn't go on a missions trip. My goal isn't to make you feel guilty because you've never been on a missions trip. My goal is to light a fire in your soul to get you excited about missions. You may never go on a missions trip. You may never go out to another country where you leave your, your language and your culture and your family and your friends and your, your comfort. You may never be part of that team, but you will be part of sending people to go. And I want you to be excited about that. We have missionaries at Placerita Bible Church. We support 11 missionaries, and they're the tip of the spear, and I want you to get excited about them. Do you, do you know where our 11 missionaries serve? Do you know them by name? Do you possibly have their birthdays in mind? I, I don't know. When I was a missionary in Italy, for those of you who don't know us, we were missionaries for 11 years uh, in Italy before coming to the States, and, and one of the sweetest things I remember well, there's many sweet things, but a sweet memory I have was when this church that barely knew us, they were one of our supporting churches, but they were behind their missionaries. These people that barely knew us would write us letters, handwritten letters, not just an email, but a letter would come and maybe it was on our birthday or something, just saying, we at this church, were praying for you and my kids are praying for you. And whenever we hear Italy, we, we think of you guys and, and we pray for you. And it was the sweetest thing to know that someone back in the States was praying for us. And it wasn't just something that we would show up once a year or once every couple years to, to, to talk about our mission and then get to meet people, but people that didn't even know us, people that we didn't even meet while we were there wanted to get to know us and, and they would send us letters. How well do you know our missionaries? How excited are you about not just missions, but let me back it up, evangelism in general. You've been saved for a purpose. And that purpose isn't to just live the American dream as a Christian. That's not the purpose for which God saved you. And so today I want to light a fire in you. I want you to get excited about, about proclaiming the good news of the gospel. We sang all about salvation. Every single one of these songs that we sang this morning was about salvation, what God is doing through his word and through his people worldwide since the beginning of time. And I want you to get excited about that. I, I even think about, and I've, I do this all the time with youth. I think I've done it up here before too. But if you were, you don't have to do this right now. I'll do it for you. Take your Bible and you open to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is this page in my Bible. Everything is great. God's created the world. It's perfect without sin. Perfect relationship with God the Father. Genesis 2 relates how God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden. And it's Genesis 3. So the third page in my Bible is where it all goes downhill. And if you were to flip, if you were to hold that there, I'm gonna see if I can do this, hold it there and you go to Revelation, the last two chapters of Revelation, 21 and 22. In my Bible, it takes three pages. Starts here, goes down to the end and to the next page. Three pages where everything is made new. Sin is eradicated. The issues of this world are done with. So this is the middle. This is it. You and I live and breathe and, and have our being here in this part. And this part is what God is doing to get people back to this. This is where he sent his son to die on the cross. And the Old Testament points towards it and the New Testament points back to it. And it's all about what God's doing. And, and it's all about God saving his people and bringing them to the end to be with him. That's what I wanna get you excited about. It's not just missions. It's about what you are called to do. So would you pray with me before we get into the text? Heavenly Father, help us to get excited about what you're doing. Lord, I pray that in some ways you would wake us up. You would rattle our cages a little bit. You would help us to see what you're about and, and, and by default what we should be about. Lord, help us to be excited about this salvation proclamation that we get to be part of, about joining together with other believers throughout the history of the world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us, Lord, as we look at your word today, help us to leave here different because we looked deeply at your word. Lord, help us to, help us to walk out of here excited to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And we pray this in your name, amen. As a title, I put, Don't Stay and Obey, go and proclaim, and I guess I should have added merely, don't merely stay and obey, 
but go and proclaim. What I want to do this morning is something a little bit different. Usually I like to pick a text and hone in on that one text and preach that one text. Today I want to do in the beginning of this message kind of a, a flyby. I want to go at 30,000 feet and, and I want to look down at what the Bible says in general about what God's been doing throughout the ages from Genesis chapter 3, from that beginning all the way into what will end in Revelation 21. I want us to see what God's been doing because it's different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. That's the stay and obey is the Old Testament part. The go and proclaim is the New Testament part. So I want you to kind of see in general, and it's going to be very fast, and there are bunches of other texts that we could go to, but I want you to catch a glimpse of what God was doing in the Old Testament and how he carried that on, but it's different for you and for me. You see, it's great to come together this morning. It was great to have the youth band up here to sing songs, to worship the Lord together, but there are places around the world that don't get that. They don't have that opportunity uh, to be able to do that. And I want you to get excited about that, about either sending people out there or going out there. But then there are places right in our own backyard, right? Santa Clarita is full of non-believers, and Santa Clarita needs you to go out from this room and proclaim the good news of the gospel. So first, let's look, though, let's look at the, the first point, and there's considerably a smaller amount of space to write. I just want you to see what God was doing in the Old Testament. And then I want us to move to what the New Testament calls for us to do. So God's Old Testament plan for evangelism, his Old Testament plan for missions was stay and obey. And I want you to see that in Deuteronomy chapter four. So flip to Deuteronomy real quick, just so that we remember the context of Deuteronomy four. They're on the plains of Moab. They're about to enter into the promised land. This is Moses speaking to God's people. And they're about to go into a land that, that God has promised them, but they've just come out of Egypt. And I say just come out. It's been 40 years that they've been wandering in the wilderness. You remember in Exodus 19 when they came out of Egypt and they were on the foot of Mount Sinai and God declares himself and proclaims himself to the people and he gives them the Ten Commandments. You remember that and he says, you will be my people and I will be your God and, and you will go and you will, you will be my people, a holy nation. And we'll look at that text in a moment in the promised land. But then what happened? Remember, they started to go to the promised land. They send Joshua and Caleb and, and the 10 other spies and you'll remember from children's ministry, the 10 were bad, but the two were good, right? So the 10 spies come back and they say, the land is amazing, it's bountiful, it's, it's awesome. However, there are giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers to them. I don't know if you've ever seen a grasshopper. Of course you have, it's a silly question. Grasshoppers are tiny, we're huge, yet somehow that tiny little grasshopper still tends to scare us somehow, right? When it jumps at you, you jump. But the Israelites said, we're afraid. And Joshua and Caleb said, no, we can take the land. We can go in. But all of Israel disobeyed. So you remember that. And God punished the Israelites for their disobedience and said, for every day you were spying the land, you'll spend a year wandering in the wilderness until everyone from this entire generation of adults dies. Everyone that day had a life expectancy that they knew about. Within 40 years, they would die. Every adult. They wandered for 40 years. Day after day, death was at their doorstep. Day after day after day. And you can, you can kind of read about that in Psalm 90 when Moses, Moses says, our days are like a flood. They just go before us. And, and death comes and you can't stop a flood. There's nothing you can do. It just comes and it's day after day after day. Then 40 years later, that's where we are in Deuteronomy. The, the young kids have grown up now and, and Moses is reminding them of what they're to be about. And look at chapter four, verse one. So now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Moses is talking. He says, listen. Now remember, they've had a really great living example of what it means to disobey because all of their parents died for that act of disobedience. So when Moses says to this crowd, listen, they're listening, they're attentive. He says, listen to the statutes and the judgments that I am teaching you today. Look down at verse two, do not add a word 
to that which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I am commanding you. God's giving them judgments and statutes and laws. He's giving them their, his own word. And Moses says, don't add to it. Look down in verse four. But you who clung to Yahweh your God are alive today, every one of you. Verse five, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as Yahweh my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. You shall keep them, that's the laws and the commandments, and do them, so don't just know them, but practice them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes. Look what he said. You're going into the land with God's word and you're to know it, you're to keep it, you're to hold on to it, and you're to do it, he says in verse, um, verse six, you're to keep them and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding. Where? In the sight of the peoples, the other peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this is a great nation Sorry, surely this great nation is wise and understanding. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is Yahweh our God whenever we call? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as the whole law which I am setting before you today? And he goes on and on. The point, Israel's point was this, you're to, you're, to, you're to keep God's law for a reason and a purpose. And that purpose was so that the other nations would look in on you and say, that nation's different. There's something different about them. They act in a different way. They, they, they think in a different way. They respond to each other in a different way. God's purpose was that he called his people to be his own. And, and you remember, actually, you can go forward, I think, two chapters, three chapters, Deuteronomy 7. Yeah, verse 7. Or back it up to verse 6. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his affection on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of these peoples. For you're the fewest of peoples. But, God, but because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. So God says, remember, I didn't choose you because you were amazing. I didn't choose you because because you could add something of your own value. I chose you. You weren't even the strongest. You weren't the mightiest nation. But I chose you because I chose to love you. That's what he says. So Israel's purpose was to stay and obey. Flip back. We're going to do a little bit of flipping in the Old Testament here, mostly in the Torah, the first five books. But flip back to Exodus 19. Remember, I told you in Deuteronomy, here we are ready to go into the land. Joshua uh, will take the people into the land at the end of Deuteronomy, the beginning of Joshua. He takes over leadership. He'll take them into the land. Remember, it's the second generation of Israelites who are there ready to go into the land. Listen to what God told the first generation in Exodus 19. Look at verse six. Actually, start at verse five. So now, this is him talking to the first generation, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you catch what God wants his people to be? A holy nation. He says, you're to be a holy nation. That's what's going to set them apart from the nations around them. You're to live in a holy way. You're to act in a holy way. You're to be a holy nation. And, and we know that that first generation did not act in a holy way. And so back in Deuteronomy chapter four, he's reminding the second generation that you're to listen to God's statutes and commandments and you will be his treasured possession. But that holiness is key because that's what separates Israel from the nations surrounding. Flip to Leviticus 19. 
you're still in Exodus, it's the next book, Leviticus 19. God's people are to be different. God's people are to act differently, to speak differently, to, to think differently. And I've already alluded to it both in, in Deuteronomy and in Exodus 19, they're to be a holy people. But that holiness is based on something. Look at, and we're gonna just glance at the whole chapter. We're not gonna read the whole chapter, don't worry. We'll glance at it. Look at verse one. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. And then he gives the reason, for I Yahweh your God am holy. When you act holy, you act like God. When you live a holy life, you live a life that, that exemplifies the Lord God. And even here in Santa Clarita, and we'll get to the New Testament in a moment, but you live a life that's different. You should stick out like a sore thumb. People should look at you and say, there's something different about you. And it's not because you're socially awkward and it's not because whatever, but it's because you love the Lord Jesus and you live a holy and a righteous life. Look down again at Leviticus 19. Look at the end of verse three. The end of verse three, he says, for I am Yahweh, your God. Every one of these rules and statutes that, that God is gonna give in Exodus 19, almost every one of them he ends with, you act like this because I am your God. And remember, from verse two, I am holy. Look at the end of verse four. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am Yahweh, your God. Look over at verse 10, at the end of verse 10. I am Yahweh, your God. Look at the end of verse 12. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. Verse 14, you shall not curse a deaf man or place a stumbling block before blind, but you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not go about, verse 16, as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. Look at the end of verse 18. I am Yahweh. He just finished saying you shall love your neighbors yourself. I am Yahweh. Are you getting the hint? He's repeating it over and over. And, and you know when things are repeated, even in your own household, that that was important as a kid. You know, son, go clean your room. That was important, son. I said go clean your room. Boom, when that repetition hit, it was time to go. Actually, I should have gone the first time, right? Be a first time listener. But when the repetition went in, and then if it was repeated three times or four times, I was in trouble already. Are you catching the hint? The reason why we're to live the way we live is because Yahweh is our God and he is a holy God. But Israel didn't catch the hint and we haven't caught the hint, which is why God doesn't stop. Look in Leviticus 19 still. Look at the end of verse 25. Now in the fifth year, you shall eat of its fruit and its produce may increase for you. I am Yahweh, your God. Look at the end of verse 28. I am Yahweh. Look at the end of verse 30. I am Yahweh. Look at verse 31. I am Yahweh your God. You might be thinking, we get it, Josh. We're to act in a certain way because Yahweh is our God. The problem is I don't think we get it enough. And I think that's why God keeps repeating it. He's still not done. Look at the end of verse 34. I am Yahweh your God. Look at the end of verse 37. I am Yahweh. Actually, I missed 36. You shall have just balances, just weights. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh. You're to live in a way, God tells Israel in Deuteronomy chapter four, you're gonna live in a holy way and you're gonna be a holy priesthood, a, a holy nation. And that way that's gonna cause others, the other nations around are gonna look in on you in Israel and say, wow, there's something different. There's no God like that God. How did he say it? I'm flipping back, you don't need to flip there. Deuteronomy chapter four. He said, when you keep them and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding. In the sight of the peoples, they will hear all of these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there who has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God whenever we call on him? 
There's a sense in which the way that you're supposed to live in a holy and righteous way will cause envy from the nations around. They've got something that we don't have. Notice it's not a go and tell, it was stay in the land and obey. And in fact, if we were to keep reading some of these Old Testament laws, it was don't even intermingle with the other lands and don't give your sons to marry their daughters and don't take their daughter, well, that's the same thing, don't give your, son, your daughters to marry either because they're gonna be a snare to you, God says in the book of Deuteronomy. You're to stay and obey. Does that make sense? Stay and obey. They didn't always live a holy and a righteous life though. I want you to think about Ezekiel 36 with me. Go ahead and flip there. If we were to fast forward in time from when Israel was about to enter in the land to over a thousand years later, you get Ezekiel 36. They're in exile in Ezekiel 36. They're, they're in their 70 years of time out. They haven't obeyed the Lord's statutes. They haven't listened to God's command. They didn't heed his voice. And so they got sent out of their own land. What national shame that was for them because no longer was, was God blessing them. They were gone and they were away. They were in exile and Ezekiel is a prophet and he's prophesying to the people in exile. And I want you to see verse, starting in verse 22, as God's talking about what will happen in the future to these people who are in exile. Actually back up to verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. So God's name, his holy name, which they were to represent, wasn't being represented whenever Israel went anywhere. Therefore, verse 22, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations which you profaned in their midst, then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And then I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the lands and I will bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is all future things for them in this time. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments and you will inhabit the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God." Look down at verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways. So after you have this new heart, after you have the heart of, of flesh, not the heart of stone, he says in verse uh, 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves to your own faces for your own iniquity and your abominations. But I am not doing this for your sake, declares Lord Yahweh. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and feel dishonor for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, on that day or on the day that I cleanse you from your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the wastelands to be rebuilt. And he goes on. Israel was not good about living a holy life. Israel was sent into, into exile because they were not living as a nation a holy life. The stay and obey wasn't working for them. Not that it was, that sounds, that's the wrong way of putting it. They weren't staying and obeying. Not that it was working for them like as if it was a, some kind of tool. That's not what I mean. They didn't do it. They didn't stay and they didn't obey. But that was God's Old Testament plan. And even back in the Old Testament, uh, God talks about the nations coming and believing on his name and they will be saved. But Israel didn't do a good job at stay and obey. I want us to shift now to the New Testament. 
I just wanted you to see that. Sometimes though, I think we're still caught up in stay and obey. Sometimes we gather on a Sunday morning and, and we love our church and that's a great thing and we love Pastor Adam and that's a great thing and we love the ministries that the church does and that's, that's a great thing. But we tend to be stay and obey Christians. We want people to come. What do we invite them to do? When we meet a non-believer, we say, come to my church, come visit the church. And, and then sometimes we'll grab someone who's very good at evangelism and we'll say, hey, you should come talk to him. Or we grab the pastor and say, pastor, can you talk to that guy? And, and we're a stay and obey kind of people. And I'm not saying I'm painting with a broad brush. That's not everybody I know. Not all of you are stay and obey. Some of you are go and proclaim, and that's great. Know that I'm painting with a broad brush right now. In general, the church in the U.S. tends to be comfortable within the four walls of the church. And we tend to be uncomfortable with the proclamation. Oh, we love salvation. We love singing songs on a Sunday morning, and that's great. That's fantastic. We love what God has done for us. It's the going and the proclaiming that get a little bit harder. And there's some things that we'll definitely proclaim. Sometimes even without shame. You have your favorite baseball team. You're willing to talk about that. What's your favorite restaurant? You're willing to talk about that. Even if it offends someone else who doesn't like Italian pizza, you'll still talk about the glories of Italian pizza or your Angels baseball team, even if it offends the Dodgers in the room, right? But sometimes we get a little bit ashamed of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to light a fire in you to say, let's go. Let's talk. I was sharing with a couple this last week, sometimes if we know that if we're in Africa, you've seen the videos, Compassion International, I've seen those. Kids are starving and they need food. And if you were there and you were in Africa and you knew that right around on the other side of the building, there was a buffet set up, an all-you-can-eat buffet, what would you tell those kids? Would you throw your hands up and say, well, their life choices, I don't really want to offend anyone, I have a hard time just barging into someone's life and telling these little starving kids that their salvation is around the corner. Would you do that? None of us would. We would start yelling in the streets, kids, get up, it's right around the corner. And if a kid was too malnourished to get up, what would you do? You would probably likely go pick up said child and you would carry them to the food because salvation is around the corner and, and you know where it's at. You've got the knowledge and wisdom to get that child there. Would you open your mouth and say something? Of course you would. Friends, how much more with the good news of Jesus Christ. Salvation is at hand, and yet sometimes we wanna be politically correct. Sometimes we're afraid to open our mouths because we don't wanna hurt a friendship, we don't wanna hurt a relationship, but the reality is, what does that person need more than anything? They don't need to know what I think about baseball. I may have really good thoughts about soccer. They don't need to know that though. What do they need you to do? Go and proclaim. Let's look at the second part. Go and proclaim. Stay and obey attitude was for showing the goodness of God, but it changed. Flip to Matthew. You know this well, Matthew 28, 19. We've heard sermons on this, even here from this pulpit. Matthew 28, 19. By the way, you can, you can already see the, the stay and obey shifts when the very second person of the Trinity got off his throne and did what? He went. He could have stayed on his throne and done nothing, but he went because he considered your salvation more important than his comfort. He got up off the throne and he came and he lived a life that you and I couldn't live and even hinted that there are others out there who need to hear. Back in, you can think of um, John chapter 10 when he's talking about being the good shepherd and he says, my sheep know my voice, but there are others, there are others out there that that need to hear it. You can think of Jesus when he went to the, the Samaritans. Oh, the Samaritans. He even told a parable about the good Samaritan. Unheard of. The Samaritan and the Jews hated each other. They hated each other. And Jesus told that parable. Remember the parable where, where a, a Jewish man gets robbed on his way to Jericho and, and, and a priest comes by. A Jewish man and there's a priest. And Jesus' parable is the 
the priest stepped on the other side of the road and walked by. And it was shocking, unbelievable. But the parable doesn't end there. And, and a Levite comes. Levites, those who would work in the temple, serve the Lord with their lives. A Levite comes by and sees the man on the road and, and he walks to the other side. Didn't want to deal with it for whatever reason. The third and final person is the good Samaritan. Oh, and you expect Jesus' parable to take a turn there. The Samaritan sees him lying on the road and, and kicks him once or twice and rifles through his pockets to see if the robbers had left anything. That's what the Jews would expect the parable to say. Instead, the parable, bends, the parable has the Samaritan bending down, taking care of his needs, pouring expensive oil on his cuts to cleanse them. And he brings this Jew whom he should hate, and he brings him to an inn and covers the cost of his care. Mind-blowing for the Jews. Jesus says that's compassion and he's being a good neighbor. Then Jesus goes into Samaria, remember that? And talks to the woman at the well. And an entire town hears the gospel because of it, because Jesus left Judea and he went into Samaria to preach the gospel. So already in Jesus' life, there are these hints of no longer stay and obey, but now go. And look at chapter 28, verse 19 of the Great Commission. Go therefore, this is right before Jesus is ascending to heaven. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We know that the, the main verb there isn't go, it's it's while you're going is the idea. It's the, the verb in Greek or the action in Greek is a, kind of a while you're going, therefore. The main verb is here. It's an imperative. Make disciples of all nations. Not make disciples of all Jerusalem or Judea, but make disciples of all nations. You're no longer here, but you're to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to command or to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Stay and obey just got changed. There's a new mission for us. There's a new priority for us. It's not to stay and obey. It's to go and proclaim. Because how can we make disciples of all nations? Because a disciple is a believer, is someone who has come to Christ. So how can we go to a nation and show up and start just baptizing them? We can't do that. We have to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel. So let's look into this a little bit. The disciples, flip to Acts chapter one. We're ultimately gonna get to Romans here, people, but Acts is gonna set us up for a little bit of the discussion. I just want you to see what God is doing throughout history in his word. Here, Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. Verse six, so when they came together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. But here's what you do need to know, he says. Here's a contrast, but meaning that which you need to know, is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea. That's what they expect, stay and obey. They would think, yep, that's normal. We're to be your witnesses here in Jerusalem. Love the city. We're here in Judea among God's people. Whoa, what does it say? And where? Samaria. Already, I bet the apostles were like, okay, we're gonna to go to a, a place where people don't like us and we're gonna bring them a message that they're probably not gonna to wanna to hear. But Jesus says, you'll receive power and then you will be my witnesses in this town, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and then where? Even to the end of the earth. You're gonna be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter two, we're not gonna read it, you know the story. The Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and Peter gets up and with all boldness he starts preaching. The people are really confused. I want you to hear the nations that are representative here. As they're listening, they're saying, whoa, how is it that we can hear them in our own language which, in which we were born? Parthians and Medes 
Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phygra and Pamphylia, Egypt and the, list, the district of Libya around Serene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. So already Peter is, is preaching and people from all over the world are listening because they're there in Jerusalem for the Pentecost, for the, for the festival of Pentecost. They're hearing this and all of a the sudden they're, they're gonna go back home at some point to all these different nations all around the world. The gospel is gonna go, but, but they don't go yet. And we see that 5,000 or 3,000 got added to their number that day. No, hold on. Yeah, 3,000 got added to their number that day. Can you imagine that for a moment? Put yourself there in Jerusalem. Peter stands up to preach. There's about 120 that were in the upper room. And then all of a sudden, 5,000 want to get baptized that day. What a sweet problem. Can you imagine if, if when Pastor Adam's up here preaching one day and people are watching on the internet, and then all of a sudden, 5,000 people get saved and they come next Sunday to church. They all show up on a Sunday what a sweet problem that would be because we only hold about 400 and something in this room. About 5,000 get saved. Chapter four, the, the apostles keep preaching and teaching and in verse four, but many who heard the message believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So they're proclaiming the good news of the gospel. By the way, the message that they heard, uh, they heard and then Peter was arrested you would think people would hear that Peter is being arrested so they wouldn't want to come. Instead, they kept coming and they kept believing and now the men alone numbered around 5,000. So there could easily be, theologians say 10,000, 15,000, even 20,000 believers in the city of Jerusalem at this time. Notice Jesus said, you will receive power and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria Flip over, they were staying though. Oh, by the way, uh, Philip becomes one of the, the uh, disciples. Philip starts preaching. Stephen starts preaching, um, going all around. Flip to chapter seven. We know that Stephen gets stoned. Up until now, remember, most of them have stayed in Jerusalem. Chapter eight, verse one now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered. Listen to where they're scattered. Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. God is pushing the people out. You will be my witnesses. Not to the ends of the earth yet, but Judea and Samaria. This Saul, if you flip to chapter 9, Verse one, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, dot, dot, dot. We know Saul's on his way to Damascus, sees the light, gets saved. Saul, his Hebrew name, Paul, his Greek name, becomes the greatest missionary of all time. If you continue in the book of Acts, you see everywhere that Paul went on three missionary journeys, probably walked somewhere around 10,000 miles in his whole life, preaching the good news of the gospel everywhere he went because stay and obey was no longer the thing. Our, our thing is to be go and proclaim. And Paul spends over 20 years of ministry. Listen, his life was harder than any life that you and I could imagine. He, he recounts it in Corinthians, right? Says he was beaten, he was whipped. He was, he was whipped 39 times with the lashes. He was left for dead. He was in danger all the time on the road, in the sea. He spent a night and a day in the depths just floating in the sea, right? All of these things because the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ was more important than anything. In Philippians, he talks about treating others more highly than ourselves and considering others more highly than ourselves. Well, what is the need that others have? What is the greatest need that this world has? It's the gospel. And if we truly believe that we should consider others more highly than ourselves, we should take the example of Christ who stepped off the throne and didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on the form of a bondservant. He took on the form of a slave, took on the form of a human. 
and he came to die for us because our needs were greater than his. And Paul considered others' needs greater than his own. Stay and obey was no longer the thing. Obey is still a thing. Peter says in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 that, that we're to live a holy life, and he quotes Leviticus. He says we're to be holy because our heavenly Father is holy. So as we go making disciples of all nations, we're to live a holy life. We're to live in a way that, that, that looks different from, the moral, for, different from, there we go, the world around us. We're to go and proclaim. I remember when I was young, when I was in youth group, I was the most shy kid in our youth group. I literally sat there during meet and greet time and I would look down at the carpet under my feet and I would just, it was meet and greet time. Get up and go say hi to someone and I would sit there looking down at the carpet. I was so shy, I didn't want to get up. And I remember reading or hearing, I think it was uh, Francis of Assisi said, um, you must preach the gospel uh, with your life, actually. It was live the gospel and if you have to, use words is what he said. And I thought, oh, that's me because I don't like speaking. I'm shy. Look at me now, right? But back then, I didn't like speaking at all. And I thought, well, I could just live the gospel. It's kind of a stay and obey mentality. I can just live it. I can look differently. And if I have to, I can use words. We're going to see in a moment that we have to use words. God saved us to use words. And Peter says this, that we've been saved so that we can declare the excellencies we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Friend, you have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light. If you're saved, you are no longer on that path to hell. You're saved and you've been pulled out of darkness and you've been put into the kingdom of the sun, into his marvelous light. You've been saved, Peter says, to proclaim it. You've been saved to proclaim, to proclaim his excellencies. Think about what you've received from God. If you're a believer, these are things that you have received from God. You've been transferred from the authority of darkness, Paul says in Colossians, to the kingdom of the sun. You have been forgiven your sins, past, present, and future. You have been forgiven. You have been given a new heart you have been ransomed, you've been redeemed, you have been given a hope and a future in heaven, you've been reconciled to God and you've been adopted into his family. Friends, these are benefits that you've received. And think about it. What did you bring to the table to receive those benefits? What is it that you brought to the Lord to receive those benefits? You know what qualified you for those benefits? Your sin. And that's it. That's all you brought to the table. But God being rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter two, but God being rich in mercy saved you. Uh, do this sometime, not now. Think through, read through uh, Ephesians chapter one and highlight all the times that it says he did this and he did that and, and highlight all the times that it talks about what God did for you and then underline all the times that it talks about what you did in the salvation transaction. You're gonna find a lot of highlights and the only underline you're going to have is that you believed. That's it. That's it. All of these things that I listed all happened to you because your sin qualified you for them. You get the eternal benefits and the blessings of God in your life, but you have nothing to offer. You, it's not that God saved you because you were so good or that you'd be so eloquent or that you could bring a lot of people to church. God didn't save you for any of those reasons. Just like he told Israel, it's not because you were a great in number that I saved you. It's not because you're amazing. Paul says God doesn't save us because we're wise or intelligent. But you've been saved, friend, so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you from the darkness and into the marvelous light. Why did he do it though? Why? Why would the son step off his throne and come down and live a perfect life that you could never live, obeying fully all of God's commands, not just the commands to, to not sin, 
But he fulfilled, not just don't be angry and don't murder people, but love them completely. Jesus went all the way and he completely loved and he completely fulfilled everything. He did something you and I could never fully do. Why would he do that for you and for me? When all we could bring to the table is the grossness of our sin. That's what this Old, Te- Old Testament sacrificial system reminded us of. You would put your hands on that Old Testament sacrifice and you would, you would transfer, it was, a, it was a visual transferring of the guilt, your own guilt, your own sin to the head of that animal and then the priest would give you a knife and you would, you would kill that animal and it would be bloody and it would be nasty and it would be smelly and it would be stinky and it would be gross and it would be costy. All of that would be what you're thinking in that moment as you're killing that innocent animal that did nothing. It was merely an innocent substitute for you. We don't think like that anymore. We don't have to offer substitutes for us. Thank God we don't have to. The substitute came and he who did absolutely nothing took all of your sin and all of my sin And he ransomed you from darkness into the light so that you could proclaim, so that you could go and tell. Listen, he didn't save you and he didn't demonstrate his glory in your life so that you could live your best life now, as Joel Olstein would tell you. He didn't save you and he didn't demonstrate his glory in your life so that you could sit on the couch and do nothing. He saved you so that you could live a transformed life and that you could proclaim so that you could proclaim the excellencies of him. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you've been saved for that purpose, to proclaim. We could stop right there. We're not going to, but we could. How how are you doing with that? How are you doing with the proclamation part. I, I fear that at times we buy into this American mentality of, of the American way and, and we want to be worried about things that the Bible says we shouldn't be worried about. And, and we tend to talk with other people not about the good news of the gospel, but about 401ks. And we talk about our retirement plans. And we talk about the bigger house that we want to buy and, and the bigger car. And we talk about all of these other things that ultimately have zero impact on eternity. And maybe we delude ourselves into thinking the reason why we talk about those things is so that we can build a relationship so that we can share the gospel. But then sometimes we then fear sharing the gospel because we don't want to ruin that relationship that we've built. Friend, what they need is the gospel. And if you are a Christian, you've been saved to proclaim it. You've been saved to proclaim it. We're in the New Testament times. We're not stay and obey, we are to go and proclaim. What I want you to do now is flip to Romans and we'll end with Romans very quickly. I want us to think about two things. What do you proclaim and where do you proclaim? The what and where. Let's go to Romans chapter 10. It's one of my favorite texts when I think about preaching and teaching uh, in a missions sense. Uh, Paul is writing to the Romans ultimately, actually ultimately this is a missions newsletter is what he's writing. He's writing to them to gather support. He says that at the end of the letter in chapter 15. He says, and I make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. He says, skipping down, uh, for this reason I'm coming to you so that whenever I go to Spain, for I hope passing through to see you and be helped by you on my way there when I have first enjoyed your company for a little while. He says, I'm coming to Rome and my hope is that you Romans would help support me and give me funds and you would send me from Rome into Spain because I wanna go where no man has preached before because there are others who can share the gospel right where we are here. But in Spain, he says, Spain, they need to hear the gospel. In fact, he, he had already said, and I didn't read it, he says, I've gone everywhere here. I've gone everywhere that I could in this section of the Roman Empire and I've preached all over the place for 20 years and and I wanna go to Spain. So this letter ultimately that Paul writes to the Romans is really a fundraising newsletter. You can imagine his picture being on the front and and him sending this newsletter to you. This is the longest newsletter in the history of mankind. Like I'll admit that this is a very long newsletter to ultimately ask for support, but that's what he's doing. 
And he talks about the glories of the gospel from chapter one all the way up to where we're gonna be at in chapter 10. He talks about how in chapters one and two, how we, we can't save ourselves and everyone is under condemnation. Everyone. In chapter three, he starts moving into then we need Christ who justifies us. And it's only in Christ can we be justified. And he talks about that through chapter five. Chapters six, seven, and eight talk about now as a believer having been justified, we still live in a sinful world and it's still hard. We're justified, we're considered holy and righteous before God. We've been declared righteous, it's a legal term, but we still live in a world that's hard. And Paul says in there, there's times I do things I don't wanna do and there's times I wanna do other things and I just don't do them. And, and he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? And then in chapters nine through 11, he's ultimately saying, okay, so what about Israel? God made promises to Israel that he would save them. What about them? And it's in the middle of that that I want us to look in chapter 10 about this sweet chorus of salvation. And, and I'll, I'll do this quickly. We're no longer to stay and obey. We're to go and proclaim. What are we to proclaim though? Look at verses nine and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, leading to salvation. He starts with this like A, B, B, A pattern. He says, first, confess. The first thing is you must confess in order to be saved. You know, this isn't just a VBS confession. I've been there, I was, I don't know, four or five as a kid, and I was at VBS. You know, and, and they asked the question after like, the streets in heaven are gonna be paved with gold. Who wants to go there? Who in their right mind would say, no? well, there's always that one kid. There's always that one kid. But, but, but no one is gonna be like, I don't wanna be with Jesus. I don't wanna have my sins forgiven. I remember being that age. Everyone raised their hand. What do you do? You raise your hand. This isn't the confession that Paul is talking about. Look at what he says. You confess Jesus as Lord. This is agreeing with God, agreeing with God about what he says is true and agreeing with God that you are a sinner. It's agreeing with God that you need a savior. It's agreeing with God that you cannot save yourself and that your sins will condemn you to eternity. This is confessing Jesus as Lord and as Lord, master of your life, master of your desires, master of your future, master of your finances, master of your problems. You're declaring him, Jesus, as Lord. As a five-year-old, I didn't get that. It wasn't until later in life when I fully understood my sin, that's when I truly believed. Is it wrong to talk to five-year-olds in VBS about the gospel? Not at all, because that seed was planted in my heart. Don't get me wrong. But it's not just, okay, I trust God. That's not a confession of Jesus as Lord. In fact, it's built on this second part. Well, before I get to the second part, I told you it was like A, B, B, A. He says you must confess, you must believe because believing leads to righteousness. Confession, verse 10, the end of verse 10, with the mouth he confesses and it leads to salvation. You cannot be saved without confessing Jesus as Lord. You cannot be saved. So. With the mouth we confess and we must confess Jesus is Lord and that leads to salvation. The second thing that we proclaim, so what do you proclaim? You proclaim Jesus is Lord. Secondly, we proclaim that you must believe. Verse nine again, the second part of verse nine, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The first part of verse 10, for with the heart a person believes leading to salvation. Sorry, no. Wrong one, leading to righteousness. With the heart, when you understand God's word, you understand that you're a sinner in need of a savior. When you believe that in your heart, it leads to a righteous life because I didn't save myself. You didn't save yourself and you cannot save yourself. Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins. And when you believe that in your heart, that leads to confessing with your mouth and it leads to a righteous living and salvation. Does that make sense? You must believe before you confess. Where do we proclaim though? Where do we, have, where do we get to proclaim this good news? Look at the next part. So this is the part B of the outline there, verses 14 and 15. 
I love how Paul here kind of reverse engineers salvation. He starts thinking about it. If, if what we want is people to be saved and we want to live a holy life so that God's salvation can be poured out to people, how do they get saved? Let's look at it. He says, how, can, how will they call on him? So how will that confession happen if they haven't believed though? And that makes logical sense. No one wakes up having never heard of the gospel, having never heard that Jesus died for their sins. No one wakes up and just says, you know what? I think I'm gonna confess that Jesus is my Lord and Savior if they've never heard him. They've never believed it actually. It's not just a matter of hearing. He starts off saying, you cannot confess until you believe. One comes before the other. Although they go hand in hand, you must believe so that you can be saved. And, and he says, but how can they call on the name of the Lord if they've never believed. This is kind of that question, what about that guy out in the middle of nowhere who's never heard, what about him? Paul's answering that here. If he hasn't believed, he can't call on the name of the Lord. He keeps going though. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? So there can be no confession without belief and there can be no belief without hearing the gospel. He's gonna go on and say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ later on. You must hear the gospel in order to contemplate it and believe it and that gospel must be believed in order to be confessed. Your neighbors, your friends, your family, your coworkers, the guy on that island out in the middle of the nowhere, needs to hear the gospel so that it can be believed, so that they can call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Your job, remember, because God saved you, was to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. You should be telling your neighbor and the kids down the road and even here at, at Placerita Bible Church every Sunday morning, we've got a ton of kids in these classrooms who need to hear the gospel. Just because they are your kids doesn't make them saved. They must believe and confess in order to be saved. So they must hear it. And so we make it our goal to preach the gospel week in and week out on Sunday mornings. Week in and week out, the Awana program preaches the gospel because just because they come here doesn't make them saved. They need to believe and confess Jesus is Lord. So we preach the gospel on Wednesdays. Sunday mornings and Wednesdays, we have youth group. We preach the gospel. You can ask them. Almost every message ends with, you must believe. Repent of your sins because just because they enter into that youth room does not make them saved. Their biggest need is to hear the gospel. But Paul doesn't end there because that guy out there that's never heard the gospel, your neighbor who has never heard it, your friends who have never heard it, your family, he says, how will they call on him if they haven't believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? This word is the same as proclaiming, it's preaching, it's declaring. How will they hear the gospel unless let me just get right to it. You open your mouth and declare it. This isn't bring them to the preacher. That's not what it's saying. Bring them to church so the preacher can preach and then they can hear and then they can believe and then they can confess. It is how will they preach? How will they hear unless someone opens their mouth and declares the marvels, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light? And how will they here without a preacher and how will they preach unless they are sent? Some need to be sent. Some need to go. Some need to go to that guy on that island who needs to hear the gospel and he needs to be sent. So missionaries need to go and, and you need to proclaim the gospel here. We must be about a proclamation ministry. Friends, I hope to wake you up a little bit. Not to guilt trip you because you didn't go to Utah this summer or you didn't go to Italy, but maybe, you know what you need to do? Maybe you need to go to Utah. Maybe you need to get on that team. Maybe you need to sign up for the next missions trip wherever it goes next summer and you need to go somewhere and you need to, to stretch yourself. Maybe it's to go to Utah within language and culture, but, but you're speaking to people who, who, who are of a different religious background and you need to proclaim the good news of Christ that Christ can save them from their sins and he is the Lord. 
Maybe you need to go somewhere that's in a different part of the world where you leave your language and your culture and your comfort and, and you're completely out there and, and you need the help of a translator, but you can go preach the good news of the gospel somewhere, wherever you go, whether it's here in Santa Clarita, whether it's in Utah, whether it's around the world. Believer, you must be proclaiming. You must be going. We can't expect that people are just going to walk through those doors because they say, oh, we've heard about Placerita and that you guys are holy people and we're coming to see you here. That's stay and obey. We need to be out and going. Even thinking about in conclusion, just what do we do with a message like this? What do we do with this? There's a couple things. If, if you're a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one thing you can do with a message like this is get excited about those who do go and proclaim. Ask them questions. How do, you, how do you start evangelism conversations? What do you do? Some people are just really good at it. Some of us aren't, and we need help. How do we start conversations with people we need to ask? And then we need to get excited about the people who do go because, listen, some, some people are equipped as evangelists. Man, they live for that. Some people have a harder time going. However, we're all to proclaim. No one's off the hook. You must proclaim the good news of the gospel. That's why God saved you. Yeah, you get the benefit of going to heaven. You get the benefit of having your sins forgiven. You get the benefits that he gives, but those are benefits that, that you don't deserve. He gave them to you so that you could open your mouth and declare the good news of the gospel. If you're here today as a believer, get excited about our missionaries. Do you know that we have 11 missionary sets around the world? We have, we have people around the world. Do you know them? Do you ever write letters to them? When they come into town, do you pull them aside and say, hey, I know you don't know me, but I've been praying for you. I'm so excited about what you're doing wherever. Get excited about our missionaries. Talk with, with Keith Shanks and, and with Micah Julian who, who help oversee the missions here and say, hey, what can I do to, to write a letter to some of these missionaries? How can I, well, when are their birthdays? Can, can I write them birthday cards? Get excited about the people who are the tip of the spear. Get excited about those who are doing evangelism in our area. Get excited. It doesn't, you don't have to join an evangelism group or team. That would be great. But you can also just Proclaim, it's bold, it's hard, it's not easy, but you've been saved not to stay and obey. Yes, you need to obey, but you've been saved to go and to proclaim. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you haven't asked the Lord to forgive you of your sins, you're in a dangerous place. You've heard the good news of the gospel preached throughout this entire message. You are eternally responsible for having heard the gospel. This message to you, if you're not a Christian and you know it, and this message cries out to you, repent, be forgiven of your sins. Don't leave through those doors hardened as you did when you came in. Don't walk out the same person. Today is the day of salvation. Don't be like Israel who didn't want to hear. Soften your heart, submit, confess that Jesus is Lord. Confess him as Lord of your life and you will be saved. I didn't read that verse. Shame on me. Paul says, whoever confesses will be saved. It's a promise. So if you're here today and you came in as a non-believer and you recognize that, afterwards we're gonna have some men and women up here who would love to talk with you. It would make their day to talk with you, to lead you to the foot of the cross and say, here's how to get saved. It's not a magical prayer. There's no bippity-boppity-boo, but it's confessing Jesus as Lord because you've believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Sinner, if that's you, make today the day. Make today the very best day as you submit your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, save me of my sins. Adopt me as your child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Lord, we need your help in so many ways, but Lord, specifically this morning, thinking about your word, Lord, help us to go and proclaim. Help us to get excited about going and proclaiming. Lord, help us to see that the world's greatest need isn't that I watch sports. The world's greatest need isn't that I know stats about stuff. 
Lord, the world's greatest need is that I open my mouth and proclaim the good news of the gospel, that I, that I declare the excellencies of you because you brought me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and eternity hangs in the balance and you have called us and you've redeemed us and you've sanctified us and you've ransomed us and you've brought us into your family so that we would proclaim your excellencies. Lord, I pray that we would get excited about that. Lord, I pray that we would get excited about going and telling. Lord, we need your help. Give us courage and give us boldness and give us strength as we rely on your Holy Spirit as we speak with people. Lord, give us courage even in the light of persecution because declaring the good news does bring about persecution. We've been hearing about it in the book of Acts this entire year as Pastor Adam's been preaching just message after message of the persecution from the hands of the people against Paul. But Lord, I pray that we would get excited to, to proclaim the good news to the, the kids in our own church, to the people that do attend our church, to the people of Santa Clarita, to the people in the United States of America, whether it's a missions trip to a, another state, another city. But Lord, I pray that we'd get excited about going too. And Lord, not all of us are called to be goers. So those who don't go, I pray they would get excited about sending missions or missionaries to the mission field. Get excited about getting behind them. Lord, I pray that our church would just be a church that's excited about proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Lord, and I pray for those who don't yet know the gospel. Lord, I pray that it would, I pray that your word would, would cut to their hearts, cut to the quick. Lord, I pray that they would see their need for you and that today they wouldn't harden their heart. Today they wouldn't be prideful. Today they would get up from their chairs and come and talk to someone that they wouldn't leave the same person who walked in. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.